welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And our show is created on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase, Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tecumloops Tesuetmik territory within the unceded traditional lands of Suetmikulu. And today's text, Words on Bathroom Walls, well, the film adaptation anyway, mm-hmm. was shot in Wilmington, North Carolina, which is the traditional home of the Wakamawakan and the Lumbee peoples. And Joe, mm-hmm. this is the second week in a row. No, is it in a row? Yeah. <laughs> that we have had this placelessness in settler YA literature. And I think at some point we should do a mini-sode about it. Yes. Uh, Two weeks in a row gives you credit to say, okay, (laughs) we need to talk about this. And what does it mean? Yeah, because it's interesting. I think like this book makes no attempt to set itself or to locate Mm -hmm. itself anywhere. And I think that many white writers in particular do that to ascribe a sense of universality. And I want to talk about why that works. And (laughs) the fact that it works is bad. (laughs) Well, also, who does this work for, exactly. right? Because there's a presumption about who the audience mm-hmm. is. And this is particularly weird, right? Because one of the big things that comes out of Words on Bathroom Walls is that this is not a universal story, right? No. That's what people fall over themselves to praise because it's telling a very specific story about schizophrenia, which is not something a lot of people have common knowledge about. Yes, exactly. It's fascinating to me because I think... Yeah, I just, I'm interested in the lack of desire to locate oneself in space. And mm, particularly in a book like this, where we have a protagonist who is so desperately looking for an anchor, it's particularly Mm -hmm. interesting, I think. But I'm not sure I want to give the author enough credit to say it's a stylistic choice, because I think it's something we see again and again from white writers. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) No, I don't get that level of thought in this book at all. No. No. So, okay, so we are reading and watching Words on Bathroom Walls this week, and I kind of want to say off the top, Joe, there's a level at which I feel unequipped to talk about this a little bit. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed the book. I found it to be a compelling read. I had some issues, but overall, like, I liked it, and I enjoyed the movie. Mm-hmm. But I went looking for some own voices, reviews, both of the book and the film, Okay, could you find any? Because I went looking and I only did a very preliminary surface level look, but all I could find was well-intentioned white ladies who seemed to think that the book was about something very different than what it actually is. (laughs) Yeah, that one you sent me today, like, I don't think that person can comprehend things. Um, No, I couldn't find any. And it... It's a little weird, right? It is a little weird. Like, I want to give Julia Walton credits the wrong word, but I really want to acknowledge that she makes a point of saying that this is not an own voices narrative. She's not trying to like appropriate a schizophrenic identity, mm-hmm. but that she did have like a, a sensitivity reader who is schizophrenic, who read the book, and that she did read about, obviously, schizophrenia and symptomatology and stuff in the writing. And particularly, she was interested in the kind of stigma that folks experience. Right. And I think she does all that really sensitively, but I say that as someone who... Yeah, doesn't know any differently. Right? Like, uh, it's interesting. I know people who have had psychotic episodes. I've never known anybody closely who had schizophrenia per se. 
And I really craved a review of both of these texts that shared that perspective and I couldn't find it. So this is a plea to our listeners. First of all, it's sort of an acknowledgement that we are coming at this from a place of ignorance. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And it's a plea to our listeners that if this is your lived experience and you've read or watched either of these texts, we'd love to hear from you and whether you want us to read that on the air or not, like totally up to you. Mm-hmm. But if you've also read any reviews that are from an own voices perspective that you could send us, I would really appreciate it. It's a conversation I'd be willing to come back to, Joe, if we had good feedback on it, because I think it's important. Yeah, I think that goes for anything that's having to do specifically with disability. This mm-hmm. feels like it's still a bit of an untapped area. Like, mm-hmm. I know on the horror side, I'm involved with a podcast network and we actually have a disability in horror podcast. Oh, cool. And the amount of response that we get to that particular subject has basically dominated all the other shows that we're offering. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because people are really hungry for that kind of content because it's just not being represented anywhere else. I think disability is still so stigmatized in so many ways. And I think Mm -hmm. publishing and film production are both just wildly ableist industries. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) We live in a wildly ableist society, so that's not surprising. But it's interesting to me the ways in which people maintain fairly ableist perspectives, like joe in our day job industry academia like academia is wildly ableist and like pretty openly so just have students turn on their videos all the time and assume that anything to do with the way that they're looking at the screen is representative of their cheating prowess oh my god oh my god oh my god oh my god (laughs) i'm writing an essay right now on e-proctoring and i just like this makes me it's a disaster So all this to say, we will get into talking about the book, but I do think that our inability to find thoughtful critique from a disability perspective on this text is both a personal failing, like I didn't even know where to look, I just sort of started Googling like a Mm -hmm. lot for the last like three days, I feel like I've just worn out my Google. Mm -hmm. But also I think criticism in general lacks a voice from disabled perspective and and particularly something like schizophrenia which is so wildly stigmatized which is one thing that i think both the book and the film do really well is addressing the sort of social contexts for schizophrenia so that's all i'll say about context uh seven minutes into the show but i think it's important (laughs) no i completely agree with you Considering how well known this property seemingly is, Mm. I was very surprised to see that there wasn't more written on it or gently criticizing it or maybe lauding it. But Mm -hmm. to feel like there's an entire discussion that's been left on the table was very surprising to me. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. So what is Words on Bathroom Walls about? (laughs) So Words on Bathroom Walls is about Adam. Adam is a teenage boy who is about to change schools. And normally that would be like enough to kick off a YA Mm -hmm. novel. Uh, But he has the added issue of he's living with paranoid schizophrenia. He has very vivid hallucinations and a lot of them. There's three who kind of make it into the film but my understanding from the book is there's like a lot more of them oh and they yeah. Are yeah yeah really noisy 
Yeah, even in the first couple of pages, there's a moment where he talks about seeing a flock or horde of colorful butterflies just erupting out of nowhere. And, you know, as always, not to talk too much about the film before we get to that section, I did feel like it was a strategic decision that Mm -hmm. they made, but it was also something that I was very much losing and wishing was there. Yeah, the film simplifies a whole bunch of things. Not surprisingly. Not surprisingly, in the way that films do. And it takes an easy way out at the end, but we'll get there. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So what happened at his last school is kind of haunting him. He had a... I was going to say, yeah, he had an incident that was very public. And as a result, he was politely asked to leave. Yeah. And I mean, it was like, it's his psychosis, right? He sees he sees things and he reacts to them because, oh my God, like one thing I think the film does really well is gets across this idea of sort of this visual and auditory noise that he's trying to navigate through to like actually exist in the world as other people are experiencing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so overwhelming. Totally overwhelming. So there's been this incident at school and I like, I think he harms a friend and that whole friend group disintegrates and like he's really on his own when we meet him at the beginning of the book and he's transitioning schools and one of the things that allows him to transition schools it's his stepfather's old high school i think it's this private catholic school Mm -hmm. so he's going there he jokes about how like they have to take him because they're nuns so they don't have a choice (laughs) they have to tolerate him right but he's also on this experimental treatment that is meant to suppress his hallucinations Yes, because we find out that he is treatment resistant. So Mm -hmm. he falls into a class of people who other drugs would normally work for, but in this case, they don't. And that makes it exceedingly more difficult for him because the usual things just don't work. Yes, and his frustration with the system that is failing him and his own very normal teen angst, like on top of that, contextually, (laughs) has made it so that he doesn't want to deal with therapy. He's forced to go to therapy as part of this experimental treatment, but he doesn't want to. And so that's the conceit of the book. The conceit of the book is that he is writing to his therapist after their therapy sessions in which they sit there and the therapist asks him questions and he stares at the therapist and doesn't answer any of them. So that's why we're getting his innermost thoughts, right? It's basically, uh, uh, what do they call it? Romana Clay, right? It's like a book in letters, except that they're all written to his psychiatrist. Yes. And at the top of each of those entries is his dosage, which increases throughout the first part of the book. And then Mm -hmm. there's a revelation that the drugs are no longer working for him. And Mm -hmm. we start to see that the dosage is being tapered off. And of course, that's what provides some conflict in the back half. Yeah, they're still working for him in terms of as they increase the dose, he can still suppress the hallucinations, but he's getting all these side effects and the doctors are really worried. Mm hmm. And so he's being forced to come off it, even though he doesn't really want to, and his mom doesn't really want him to. So it's very much like a, that's the arc, right? The arc Mm -hmm. of attempting this experimental treatment and then realizing it's not working for him. But there's also a girl, Brenna. Of course, there's a girl, Joe. There's a girl named Maya, and she's incredibly special, because of course she is. Oh boy, yep. A little bit of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl here. Brenna, she's the cure. Oh my god. (laughs) And he doesn't want to let her in. So one of the deals that the school makes with Adam's stepdad is that no one will know that he is living with schizophrenia. And so he also doesn't tell anyone. He doesn't tell the friend that he makes, whose name escapes me, Joe. I actually really like him. I want to say Todd. Mm, Feels right. Um, (laughs) And he doesn't tell Maya. 
but she's really observant. She can see that, like, there's something up. So he tells her he has, like, headaches and stuff like that. Sure. All this to say, as he's taken off the medication and as he becomes increasingly unable to navigate the world of the high school, he decides to take Maya to prom. Mm -hmm. And he wants prom to be this really amazing experience. So he saves up a whole bunch of his pills. Thinks he can like super suppress his hallucinations that night. Mm-hmm. And instead, obviously, he makes himself very, very sick. And there is an incident at the dance. He pushes Maya to the ground. Yes. And he ends up hospitalized. Mm-hmm. And the book ends with him having to come to terms with what's happened and face Maya because his mom has explained the situation to Maya. And it's sort of about, you know, can he open himself up enough to live an honest life with someone? And at the same time, can Maya be the person who can see him for all of his faults? But the ending is happy but ambiguous. And obviously the film doesn't go that way. (laughs) No, no. And there's a ton more in there. So there's a bully named Ian who is actively trying to uncover dirt about him. Mm Mm-hmm. And Ian, of course, also has a bunch of dirt on Maya because in a super immoral twist, his family pays for Maya's scholarship. And so he gets to sit in on these meetings about her progress through school. That was one kind of step too far that I didn't. It's like, that's not a thing. (laughs) Uh, It's kind of important that Maya and Adam are on an academic excellence trivia team Mm because it allows them to spend a bunch of time together and get more intimate and have a bunch of sex. Mm -hmm. And of course, we also need to acknowledge that Adam has a very overprotective mother who has been very invested in his development, very protective of him, particularly against Paul, that is the husband. Mm -hmm. He has a mother who is not supportive of Adam. So Mm -hmm. Adam's mom is very protective of him. And she also gets pregnant throughout the course of the book. And at the end of the book, the new baby arrives. And you get this impression that the new baby could have been a source of conflict, but Mm -hmm. Adam tries to leverage his feelings of love for his new sibling Mm -hmm. as a way to find a way forward. Yeah, there's this real sense that Adam has embraced a desire to move forward with treatment, but also recognize that this is part of who he is. So a lot of the early part of the book is him just being very understandably angry about the hand he's been dealt. Yes. And part of the conclusion of the book is is a certain amount of acceptance or realization that this just is what it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a bad hand, but it's also something that you can't get away from. So you Mm -hmm. have to find a way to live with it. Mm -hmm. And it's a bad hand, but he also recognizes that compared to a lot of folks who have the same hand dealt, he's got some good stuff in his corner. Like the fact that he does have a mom who will fight for him, that he eventually Mm -hmm. recognizes that his stepdad hasn't been trying to step between him and his mom, but is actually like 100% in his corner as well, just doesn't always know how to express himself. You know, that Maya is going to stick around after finding out the truth about him, which he never thought was possible. And the same with his friend, actually. I think that friendship narrative is really important too, because Mm -hmm. his other friends have abandoned him when they found out. And this friend who Joe thinks is named Todd, and I don't remember what his name is at all, um, is completely, sweetly, quietly loyal. He just, 
when Adam comes home from the hospital, they've been playing tennis every Monday because their moms make them and they just Mm kind of kept doing it. And the first Monday that he's home from the hospital, he comes by to play tennis. And Adam's like, I'm not going to go play tennis. I just got back from the hospital. And he's like, okay, you want to play video games then? (laughs) It's just like really sweet. There's something very, I don't know. I find sweet male friendships really rewarding in books. So I liked that. Well, I think it's nice too, because it reiterates that not all loving relationships have to be foundationally based in sexual Mm -hmm. intimacy, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. In fact, one thing I liked about the book, there is too much Maya is the cure stuff at the beginning, but she is not the resolution to his feelings about his illness in the end like it's a Mm -hmm. constellation of things it's the love he feels for his new sister and it's the love he feels for his stepdad it's the love he can finally recognize in his mom's devotion to him it's the friendship right like what pulls him through is a constellation of things which i think is a strength of the book something i was worried about all the way through (laughs) was Mm -hmm. that it was just gonna be like and then we kissed and i didn't have schizophrenia anymore yeah, because there's definitely there's a portions of, in the yeah. early part where you just think, oh, no. Yeah. That is a potential direction it could go in, and that would not be very good. And I think that's the narrator as opposed to the book itself. You know what I mean? Like, he mm-hmm. he wants that, and the book is very careful to tell him he doesn't get to have it, unfortunately. Yeah, and we jokingly referenced a review off the top of (laughs) a woman who one of her main issues with this book was the fact that Adam behaves like a, what, 17-year-old boy who is not using PC-friendly language, who is not very happy with himself or the world and doesn't act like a perfect disabled person. Yeah. And... I do think that that's one of the struggles. Like, it's something that I had to come to grips with as I read this, because I just got so frustrated with Adam for refusing to confide in Mm -hmm. Maya. Like, Mm -hmm. to the point where I just thought, you have taken this so far, why won't you just let her in? Mm -hmm. But that's also because we're in Adam's head, and he's both too proud to reveal the truth, and also, I think, ashamed and working through it like he's he's very turbulent emotionally Mm -hmm. and that does come through but it's challenging as an able-bodied person Mm -hmm. to sit there and read it and just think oh my god you're suffering unnecessarily let someone help you yes 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 he's a very frustrating narrator for that reason but it rings true. <laughs> so true. He's a 17-year-old boy. Like, yes. And he, he wants so desperately to be quote-unquote normal, right? And mm-hmm. the idea of being honest is not just about being honest with Maya, but about being honest with himself and risking everyone else finding out. And like the last time that happened, it was really bad. So it's a very empathizable position (laughs) but it's also extremely frustrating and yes one of the critiques and it's not only that blog you sent me joe i've seen it several places there's a a strong critique from some folks and again i want to say not own voices reviews because i haven't found those right there's a a lot of white ladies complaining that he uses the word crazy to describe himself and i i think that that is a term that is very much in conversation in a lot of disability communities i did some reading you know it's one thing to use it as a term to describe your own frustrations with yourself and obviously something very different to have it hurled at you yes and i think it's very much the former in adam's case 
I think so too. When he talks about other people, like there's a scene where he sees someone talking to himself on the street and Adam doesn't yell, (laughs) you're crazy at that guy, right? Like he's incredibly, I mean, he's deeply disturbed because he sees his future potentially going that way. And one thing he keeps coming back to is the way in which like society abandons people with schizophrenia. And he's terrified of that as a future for himself, but he's also deeply empathetic with that person. Like Mm -hmm. all of Adam's anger and hatred is turned inward. And I think that's one of the reasons why the book is really hard to read at times. Mm -hmm. But I don't think it's a fair thing to critique the book on. Well, no. Not given the parameters, like if this was presented from the perspective of Adam's mother Mm -hmm. and she was using that language, then yeah, absolutely, that's a valid critique. But it feels like people are reading this and expecting the book to be some kind of woke progressive text about mental illness. And this is written from the perspective of someone who doesn't have that clarity and who is living it. Yes. And also... We should acknowledge that Adam is a very angry narrator. Mm-hmm. He's also kind of a funny, sarcastic, yes, wry narrator. <laughs> yes, so there's is. a lot of times where he's using the language of the people that he feels stigmatizes him, mm-hmm. often rightfully so, and he's kind of turning it outward as a joke. So he's yes. referencing like, oh, I'm just that crazy person that you're afraid of. And that's him... Taking redirecting it some of the yeah. anger and trying to say like, well, I can make it a joke, but... Yep, yep, totally. I don't know. I just, I have to laugh at those people because that's where I see people wanting things from a text that just seems unreasonable to ask for. Yeah, I think so too. And it's this difficult line when you know it's a, not an own voices text. I think sometimes... Mm. Uh, Joe, how do I want to say this? <laughs> do I want to say this? If Julia Walton was writing from her own perspective, people yes. probably wouldn't feel comfortable critiquing it because she would have that in her arsenal to say, well, actually, yeah. let me tell you about my experience. This is it. But because she is not speaking from an own voice as people are saying, well, you really should be more sensitive about your language. Yeah, and I think it's a troubling dynamic for me because... Looking for sources for today's episode really reminded me that able people do an awful lot of talking on behalf of disabled people. And, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yes, Julia Walton is doing that here, right? She is very literally an able-bodied person talking on behalf of disabled people here. Yes. But and she's also upfront about it, which is something that a lot of these reviews that we have come across are not upfront yeah. about. Yeah, and I wish more of the reviewers would cop to their own contexts like Mm -hmm. i felt like i kept getting to the end of a review and being like but what is your perspective that you're coming from like at least walton tells me up front she even tells us like what readings she based her research on so that Mm -hmm. we can contextualize where she's coming from and i worry that sometimes uh, ya criticism in particular i think we've gotten to this place where it's like Okay, I opened the book and it's not an own voices reader, so here's my review about how it's bad based on some very surface analysis. Mm-hmm. I actually think this book deserves more. I want to read a nuanced critique of this book, and I just can't find it. Yeah. It's weird, right? Because this feels like a conversation that we don't normally have because we're very much advocates for our own voices. To be clear, that's not what we're suggesting is missing. Like, I would have loved to have read this book from an own voices perspective. Yes. I don't think that that means we should throw this book into a fire and no. say no one should ever read it. Yeah. 
But yeah, it's something where when you're having conversations about media and cultural texts, it's very important to be cognizant of the perspective that you're bringing as the person who is consuming and criticizing. Mm -hmm. And by criticizing, I mean, like, it can be constructive criticism, it can be pointed criticism. But part of this is that you and your subjectivity plays a role in how you consume. Yes. And that's not just for the creator, right? Like, I think we're very comfortable having that conversation about the creator, we're less comfortable having that conversation as critics. So yeah, I don't know. I I liked the book. I think it's really worth reading. I also think it's worth some sustained attention. Mm -hmm. And I would love to read some perspectives on it from folks who live with schizophrenia or different kind of forms of psychosis. Like I think it would be really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. My one big critique of the book was that often it felt like it was written by a woman and not a man. You told me that. I didn't have that experience this time. So I was really interested in hearing that. Where did you feel like the sort of mask came off the author in that way? Uh, It it definitely was early on. So part of this might have just been me acclimatizing to the nature of the writing. But it felt deliberately, ooh, I think about sex a lot. I'm a boy. Okay, that's probably like, okay. Fair. Um, I mean, it, it's not an unfair assertion to make, but I don't know. It's Especially as we went on and it was like, Maya's going to rescue me. She's my dream girl. I'm like, well, now use them like a lot of the female driven YA mm. texts that we've read too. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. I think I was just so enjoying the conceit of the psychiatrist's office. Hmm. I kind of was disappointed with how that adapted to film. I don't know how I thought it was going to adapt to film. Oh, yeah. I immediately flagged that as, oh, well, this isn't going to work very well in film. (laughs) Yeah. Well, why don't we transition over to the film and we can talk about how that adaptation decision didn't work quite as well. Yes, please. Mmm, honey, it's so good. Yeah? Mm Mm-hmm. Have a good day. Me too. And that's when we found out I have schizophrenia, a chronic mental disorder allowing for visual and auditory hallucinations. Never normal. The end. Some people just hear voices. Good morning. But I see mine. More awesome. I'm more believe I had to switch schools. Where's your straitjacket, freak? My mom is on this quest for a cure. But nothing works. Just give it time. This looks like it could be nice. I'm Maya. I'm Adam. I came over here to intimidate you into that something tells me you're harmless. If you need anything, let me know. For the first time in forever, I felt normal. What's with the cookbooks? I'm sort of studying to be a chef. Sort of? Where are you? What? Don't look at me. Look at her. Do you have a problem with eye contact? Do you always say exactly what comes in your mind? Well, it's best to say exactly what you mean or nothing at all. Unrelenting honesty, you know? 
You know, when I first met you, I thought maybe he's just awkward and unsocialized, but that's not it. There's something else. I don't know what to say to that. I'll crack you, Petroselli. Last night. All right. So our film is from 2020. It is adapted by Nick Navita and directed by Thor Frudenthal. And Thor Frudenthal is a person that we potentially might come back to. He's adapted some of the Diary of a Wimpy Kid films. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was wondering what his background was. Yeah. He also did the second Percy Jackson. So if we ever decide to revisit that. Oh, we will encounter him again. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> He's a big television director, too. Mm-hmm. All right. So we are in familiar territory with our cast, Brenna. Good Lord. Uh, strangely enough, even though this was filmed in North Carolina, we have a lot of Canadians in this movie, to the extent that I wondered whether this was a Canadian film. <laughs> so many Canadians. Yeah. So anchoring this film as Adam is Charlie Plummer, he is not Canadian, but we no. have encountered him in previous episodes, Spontaneous, as well as Looking for Alaska. Mm-hmm. And then the start of our Canadian regiment is Taylor Russell, who plays Maya. She's so good. She's uh, she's an amazing actress. Yeah, yeah, she's so so good. I mean, and overall, this film is kind of stacked with talent. It is. I actually, I think the actors are all doing really good work. Actually, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. So we've got Andy Garcia playing a new for the film character, Father Patrick. Mm-hmm. We've got Beth Grant as Sister Catherine, who is the head of the school. And then Molly Parker is Adam's mother, Beth. Yes, I'm sorry. Canadian can we royalty. Pause? <laughs> can we pause for a second, Joe? We are so old now. We are so old that Molly Parker is playing moms now. Oh, people go back to spontaneous because I said that exact same thing <sighs> for the mom, Piper Parabo. I was like, I remember when she was in Coyote Ugly and she's a freaking ingenue. Yeah, I know. I'm thinking about like all Molly Parker's like Canadian film debuts and mm-hmm. stuff. I'm thinking about like last night. And, oh my god! All right, sorry. Yeah, she's amazing. <laughs> we love her. We got Walton Goggins as Paul, who I thought was one of the arguably more creative choices because mm-hmm. I would not have thought of him for this role. No, no, and he's quietly quite good in it. He is. Yeah, I mean, people don't give Walton Goggins enough credit. He is a great actor as well. Well, and there's a lot of subtlety to Paul's character because it's really important that Adam not understand him, right? Like that's really critical to their relationship. Paul loves him, right? Mm -hmm. But to play that in such a restrained way that it makes sense that Adam doesn't get it, I think is a challenge and he does a good job. Yeah, especially in the film, their dynamic is one of the better emotional beats. Mm -hmm. And I specifically liked, because as someone who holds grudges quite well, I love that a lot of Adam's anger and frustration, particularly with Paul, comes from one single incident that he can't let go of, which is that Paul has said, well, maybe we should send Adam to somewhere where they can handle him. Mm -hmm. And he overhears that and he then holds it against Paul indefinitely, even though Paul is in his corner in a lot of other ways. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I just really like that because that is such a deeply human thing to do. In fairness, Paul's other sin is that he doesn't really like adam's cooking that much uh i mean there's questions about adam's (laughs) cooking because we also learned that he loses his senses at different times so i was constantly trying to figure out is his cooking good or bad yeah i think the film isn't sure honestly i don't think so either (laughs) 
So as you mentioned, there are three specters who Adam sees, and that is dialed back from the book, but they are embodied by actors, Anna Sophia Robb as Rebecca, who is basically in the film, each of the characters has a very specific function. So mm-hmm. Rebecca is his kind of moral conscience. She's very much in Adam's corner. She's kind of like his emotional linchpin, right? Yeah. Yeah. And she kind of lets him know... I mean, it sounds trite to say it, but she kind of lets him know whether he can trust a situation or not. Yes. Yeah. It's very critical in the book. It's It mm-hmm. becomes important in the film as well, though. Yeah, I, I definitely say more so in the book mm-hmm. than the film. She's mm-hmm. just kind of... She's kind of like a good angel in the in the film, right? It's yes. more like there's a good angel and a bad angel in the film. Yes. And so the bad angel would be the bodyguard character played by Lobo Sebastian. Mm-hmm. And then there's also a sexual id character Joaquin played by Devin Bostick he's fully naked in the book but in the film he is not yeah it's kind of a boxer shorts and robe situation yeah (laughs) which was again always gonna happen because you aren't just gonna have casual nudity (laughs) especially casual male nudity (laughs) no uh, that gets you an x rating exactly (laughs) so some key distinctions between the book and the film the film eliminates the academic club that adam and maya have so instead this was one of the things i didn't love but i don't think it would be an issue if you only watch the movie and this they make it so that adam can't concentrate Mm -hmm. and as a result he is not doing as well scholastically so he ends up hiring maya as a tutor it's also a bit trite because as long as he takes the medication and suppresses his hallucinations he's like a genius right like he can Mm -hmm. focus and i found that a bit easy Yes. Yeah. There's a few too many easy elements in the film, if Mm -hmm. we're being honest. Mm -hmm. So one of the other things is that Adam learns that the medication isn't working, but he also at one point just decides to stop taking it. He doesn't like the side effects in the film, which I also thought was a little bit... I mean, I know it is an experience that folks have, but Mm -hmm. I also worry it's a bit of a stereotype reason for treatment resistance. And I was actually kind of proud of the book for not making that choice. So when the film does it, the side effects that he can't live with, he has like a shakiness about his muscles Mm -hmm. and twitchiness. And most importantly, his sense of taste comes and goes and so he can't trust his ability to cook which of course is central to his identity way more so in the film in the book it's like it's a nice hobby that makes him feel good in the film it's like all he wants to do with his life yeah i got the impression in the book it was more like a coping mechanism so Mm -hmm. if i can't sleep i will go and bake or i will do this because it will take my mind off of it well it's also a thing he can do successfully even when he feels he can't do things other things successfully right yeah whereas in the film it's his vocation it's what he wants most from life until he meets maya and then he wants maya most yeah than everything else in life yep i guess the other important thing to note is that maya gets a bit of a shaky backstory in the film which is that her father is on disability her mother is not in the picture unlike the book where her mom is a nurse who is just working nights Mm -hmm. and because her father is on disability she has to work part-time so hence the tutoring hence the completing work for other students under the table and getting paid for it and I think the issue is is that the film does this to try to flesh her out, but yeah. as a result, it also does nothing with it, so it feels like a non-starter. Well, there is a class difference between them in the book. And mm-hmm. She's on scholarship, as you mentioned. Yeah, and it comes from the fact that, again, the book makes a harder choice than the film. 
in the book, her dad is lazy. Like her dad's a layabout. Like he doesn't work. He takes occasional shifts and then also just goes long periods without working. And Mm -hmm. she watches her mom sort of suffer because of those choices. And so there's this really clear distinction with Adam when he comes to the house and cooks for them, right? And on the one hand, she's like, are you just doing it to feel sorry for me? So it's just contextually different. And it yeah. in the book, it really is an honest backstory. Whereas in the film, it's like, what's interesting? Poor people. <laughs> yeah. And particularly because she is a person of color. Yes. One of the things that because we remove this academic club thing and we also remove Ian, who is the foil in the book. So Ian is actually driving a certain amount of the conflict because you constantly feel that Adam is being watched and you're waiting for, you know, the hammer to fall. Like Ian is going to do something to get him kicked out or embarrassed, which ultimately is what happens. Mm -hmm. But because there's no Ian character at all in the film, we end up having to artificially construct more of this, which is why I think Adam goes off his meds and becomes more movie level yes mental illness depiction yes and that to me was a disappointment i have to say yeah it was also visually really cool to watch i have to say like i think they did a good job often of the delusions and hallucinations and making them seem so real to adam while Mm -hmm. helping us to recognize that they're not real to anyone else oh the other subplot that we have in the book that's not in the film is Sandy Hook happens in the book. Oof, yes. Yeah, I actually screenshotted that and shared it. So if folks haven't been following our shiny new Twitter handle Mm. at HKHSPod, you'll see I took a picture because I don't know how it looked for you. But for me, it was like one chapter was just a couple of lines. And then the next page, it's like, I haven't written in a while. And you think it's just because they went away for Christmas break. And then it says Sandy Hook happened. And now all eyes are on me because I am the dangerous kid in this school. Yep. And I thought that that was so interesting a choice to make for the book because Mm -hmm. it comes back to this idea of stigma and Adam has not given this school any reason to think that he will be violent. No. But because of Sandy Hook, suddenly there's this assumption that one of the things that mental health activists come back to over and over again is the idea that someone experiencing a psychotic crisis of any kind is much more likely to be a danger to themselves than a danger to anyone else. Mm-hmm. And Adam really embodies that yes. throughout the text. And so to see him sort of turned into the villain the way he is in the book is so upsetting, right? Mm-hmm. Anyway, so the, the school basically decides they want to get rid of him or they at least want to make public his diagnosis so that they right. aren't accused of withholding information from people if he were to do something. And oh my Icky. God, it's so upsetting. Icky. It's so upsetting. And the film doesn't really do that so much as keep track of the fact that he's either performing adequately or not performing adequately. Mm -hmm. It does still culminate at prom where Adam has gone off his medication. He has snuck out of the house so that he can have a perfect date with Maya. Mm -hmm. And everything seems to be going well, except of course at this point he has actually been put on probation by -hmm. Sister Catherine. And instead of pushing Maya, he pushes Sister Sister Catherine. Catherine. And then he climbs up onto some scaffolding and falls and breaks his arm. Yes. 
I do think it loses some of the power by not having Maya be the person that he ends up harming. Mm-hmm. Although I feel like in the film that would have played more tropey in some ways. Yeah. So it was a kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. Yeah, I think so. I think because of some of the other choices that they made in the film, they kind of, yeah, agreed. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I do think that the film succeeds by being able to visually capture yes. how overstimulating mm-hmm. the world that Adam lives in is for him. My favorite scene is the one for that is the one where he's first interviewing with Sister Catherine. Okay. And he's trying to hold a quote unquote normal conversation to yes. make sure that he gets a place in this school, but from his perspective, she is on fire. The room is on fire. Mm-hmm. Everything is on fire. And he just has to like sit there and like maintain, you know, it's wild. To me, mm-hmm. that was a very effective way of depicting the struggle that goes on internally for him. Yeah, I like the idea of it, but the fire effects oh, yeah, no, it wasn't great. good enough no. for me to be convincing. So I actually preferred the opening scene before he switches schools where they're working with corrosive substances oh, and gosh. he inadvertently burns his lab partner mm-hmm. because he is experiencing like a really, really overwhelming visual of like a cloud and shaking and wind and it's just so all-encompassing. I thought it was a great way to open the film mm-hmm. and to use the FX and the visuals to really say, can you imagine trying to live with this all day, every day? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Agreed. I don't know what else to say about the film. I liked it, but... Okay, well, we should probably talk about the end. Because yeah. the way that it treats Maya's decision, they do play similarly, so... Part of it is that Maya ends up getting angry, not because he lied to her, Mm -hmm. but because he didn't allow her to make her own decision. Mm -hmm. In the book, that plays out as, okay, well, where do we want to go from here? Whereas in the film, it's like, well, you might as well get married tomorrow. So at the end of the film, the baby is born, and there's this like tableau shot of Adam, his mom, his stepdad, the baby, and Maya, and they're all cuddled up on the couch together. Mm-hmm. And there is one moment I really like. In the film, they depict at least some of his sort of black uncertainties about his family life with this open door. Mm-hmm. And when the door is open, there's like this black emanating from the space. And it, there's a scene very, like right at the end, where Paul stands up and he just gently closes. He doesn't say anything to anybody. He just gently closes the door and winks at yeah, Adam. Yeah, and yeah. I thought that was a really nice scene. I thought so too. But overall, the like final happy family tableau is way too much. It's way too defined. Mm-hmm. As is the fact that he has this sort of like, I don't know, oh, captain, my captain moment where he like takes control of his narrative and he goes mm-hmm. and he tells everybody at the graduation that he has schizophrenia and he basically sort of like an ad lib version of the essay he wishes he had written that won the award because by the way he's really super smart if he just stays on his meds and then he gets into culinary school and apparently there's absolutely no issues there and it's just kind of like yeah it's too simple and safe and it's very hollywood well that that's the thing right because so much about the book is that I don't think it's suggesting, oh, well, there's no hope for people. But it is saying you need to be realistic. And the film is very 
you can overcome anything. All you have to do is find love and have the support of someone. And by the way, no discussion in the film about what the ongoing treatment plan is. No. Like at the end of the book, it's like, we're going to keep trying medications to help you manage your symptoms. But also you've learned from this experience that therapy is really important. That like mm -hmm. talking to someone, not holding this all inside of you. And yes, talk to Maya. Yes, talk to your mother. But also like talk to a trained psychiatrist, right? Like that's a big part of the book is him coming to terms with what a treatment plan is going to look like. And the film is kind of like, and he's fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, I think he briefly mentions that he'll still have good and bad days. Yes. But there's no suggestion that he's either still in therapy or... It's just very unrealistic in a lot of ways. I think troublingly so, given how the film wants to also address things like the stigma. It's almost like the film wants to hit all the high points and all the complexities of the book, but it doesn't want to have to do the hard work of an ambiguous ending. And so no. in so doing, it kind of undoes a lot of the complexity that it sets up for in the rest of the film. Yeah, it's the problem of throwing millions of dollars at a screen project and then saying, well, we can't risk leaving with a downer ending. Yeah. Because that puts our, our money at risk. <laughs> yep. Yep. So I do just briefly want to say that I think both Charlie Plummer and Taylor Russell are really great in this movie. I would also like to not see Charlie Plummer in more of these movies. And I got <laughs> flack for saying this online. And it's not because I don't think he's a good actor. It's because I think he's slumming it in these roles. I think they're easy for him. Yes. Um, And I think that he is... I don't know how to say this because it's not my intention to denigrate this category no, like we, that we I love obviously YA. love. <laughs> I love it's YA. It's just one of those things where I think he's capable of doing more than what the roles he's taking ask for him. If there were better roles, I would say absolutely continue doing YA, but it feels like we've seen this version of a Charlie Plummer performance in all of the properties that he's been in. Like, I don't see differences between his no. character in Spontaneous with this performance with Looking for Alaska. No. And it's not because he's not doing a good job. He's doing exactly as much as the material provides him. He's doing as much as he needs to to keep making these kinds of movies. And I just feel like, you know, he's 22 years old, 23 years old now. Like, I want him to start taking some adult roles because... I think that he's going to get trapped in a particular kind of romantic hero and he's going to age out of it if he doesn't start doing something more interesting. <laughs> and folks, if you want to see the full acting prowess of Charlie Plummer, I'm going to recommend that you seek out a film called Lean on Pete. It's a hard to watch film, but it is about a boy who falls in love with a horse and decides that he wants to try to rescue it from being put down. It's a former racehorse, and he ends up going on a bit of a cross-country tour with it. And it works out about as well as you can imagine mm. a teenage boy with a horse mm. working out. But it's a fantastic film, and that performance is killer. It's so good. He needs to stop taking the same troubled boy who hides behind long bangs. Like, he needs to not, <laughs> not take mm -hmm. any more bang-based roles. Exactly. You have <laughs> nailed it, Brenna. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Get a haircut, Charlie Plummer. <laughs> Shall we play some YA bingo? <laughs> yeah. Bingo! Not a good bingo. Okay. So, okay. Brenna, I feel good about our chances of getting a line this week. Okay. Let's see. Let's see. Okay. Where do you want to start? 
Okay, I am going to say ableism. Okay. For the film, I would be interested to hear perspectives on the book for sure. And I would still, like, I will qualify all this by saying I could have my mind changed by a good own voices reading of these texts for sure. Mm -hmm. But I think that in the film, the choice to make his competencies directly related to his successful medicating and the fact that he is becomes a violent figure in the film. Like, I think there are some ableist tropes in the film. Yes. And thematically, I think the book deals with themes of ableism, and thus I would use it for both texts. Okay, but in different contexts. In yeah. different contexts. Okay. Obviously, Maya is a manic pixie dream person. And even Rebecca, to a Oh my god, Rebecca extent. is totally a manic pixie dream person. <laughs> um, I think that might be it for the bees. Yeah, good friendships in the book, for sure. Yeah. Between Adam and the guy whose name we don't remember. <laughs> uh, it's Todd, clearly. <laughs> I'm going to look it up after. I don't remember. It's not going to be Todd, I guarantee it. <laughs> uh, stunt casting. Yeah. Stunt casting for Canadians? Is that a special category? Uh, you know what? It's our podcast, so it's stunt casting to <laughs> us. If you're going to put Molly Parker into something, then bam. Yeah, we're going to call it stunt casting. Um, I don't know. What do you have? Okay, so I have Forever Young, but it's not for Charlie Plummer. It's actually for... The naked guy? Taylor Russell. She is 26, brother. No. You betcha. Oh, wow. Okay. Hello. Mm -hmm. Wow. Get on yeah. that retinol regimen. I'm going to say holiday climax for the prom. Okay. I'll allow it. If only because I appreciate that we could put it under perfect date, but obviously the prom does not go as planned. No. But the prom, it's a timed celebration. Mm -hmm. not only do things always build to that but also it's just something that happens at the same time of the year and often films and books will use it as like a holiday event wherein bad things will happen or things come to a head right okay got yeah. it fair i'm gonna say perfect date for the movie that they go to in the film oh, okay yeah and I will just give a shout out that I thought the choice to feature Never Been Kissed, the Drew Barrymore movie, mm. is a bit inspired because it's all about a character embarking on a romantic relationship while she is undercover. So in that right. film, she is uh, much older than a high school student and she goes undercover to get the scoop. And in this case, it very much to me mirrored the kinds of things that Adam is dealing with, where mm. he feels like he is undercover as a regular teenager because he refuses to tell Maya the truth. I buy it. Okay. I'm also going to suggest borrowed time because there's a ticking clock over like, when will Maya find out the truth? But you can fight me on that. No, but I would put it in for the book. I would use borrowed time for the book because from the second half on, it's clear that the medication is not working and there is no other plan for treatment. So you know that we are on a countdown to some kind of crisis. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say inauthentic voice because technically this is not an own voices story. I'll buy it. Okay. And the final one that I have is house porn, because even though Maya is supposed to be financially <laughs> destitute, her bedroom is the size of a dance floor. I know. And his house is gorgeous, too. Of course. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. So we, we nearly got there, but no. yeah. alas, it did not configure properly. <laughs> yeah. I hate this board. We got to shuffle this board, man. I'm shuffling this board for next week. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited. Mm -hmm. You know, if we get a blind next week, people are going to accuse us of rigging the decks. This is true. This yeah. is true. Well, yeah. again, our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, folks. So uh, if you want to get in touch with us, particularly if you have some readings of these texts we should be checking out, please let us know. You can find us on the Twitters, at, as Joe has already said, at HKHSPod. Uh, and if you've got something longer, it's HKHSPod at gmail.com. We do still watch our hashtag, hashtag HKHSPod. And Joe, if they just want to find you with some Charlie Plummer fanfic. Oh my goodness. <laughs> How do they find you? I am at B stole my remote, and that's the letter B. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray, that's Gray with an A. And next week... We're back on our book club. So next week, it's book club again. I've already read the book again, and I'm so excited to talk about it with everyone. Mm-hmm. So we are reading Brown Girl Dreaming by Jacqueline Woodson. And if you've been reading along or you're just picking it up now, please be sure to get in touch with us with your feedback, short, long, or anything in between, so we can share it on the show. Mm-hmm. We're going to keep hammering this home, but folks, it's not a book club if it's just Brenna and I having a conversation. We do that every week, so we need to hear from you. That's the whole principle behind book club. So please, if you've been following along, let us know what you're thinking about the book. Rule number one of book club is absolutely tell us that you're doing book club. <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> and where are we going with our next full length? Oh, wait for it. So our next full-length episode, Joe. Joe. I'm feeling romantic. Unambiguous joy for the final Jenny Han book, which is called Always and Forever, Laura Jean. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right? Yeah, so that took the, me a second. <laughs> the final film is dropping on Netflix, so we are going to be tackling it after Valentine's Day. But you know what? It's the kind of love that is worth waiting for. Yeah, it's true. And you know what? You don't need Noah Centineo on Valentine's Day anyway. That's a cliche. Watch wow. it two weeks later with us. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Coming in hot. Yeah. You know. Uh, so until next time, I will see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.